Here's something to think about. Believing envy to be sinful, we deny our own wanting. Believing gluttony to be sinful, we deny our own hunger. Believing lust to be sinful, we deny our own pleasure. Now, I was raised Catholic, so I've read about the seven deadly sins before, but never like this. Elise Lunan has written a book about the particular ways that women often strive to be good and how they might set us up to squash down real and valid parts of ourselves. It's called On Our Best Behaviour, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. Elise, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm very interested in this whole concept. The the chapter headings alone had me at, at page one. And we should note too that you make it clear you're not talking about the category of woman as, as a biological uh, essence, but as an idea of what it means to be a woman. Tell me exactly. where the, the negative consequences come from, from trying to be good, because it seems better than the alternative. Yeah. Well, I think it comes from this idea that we have been sort of in our patriarchal culture, we've outsourced this idea about what good is to external authorities, whether it's priests or professors or parents, and that this is something that we inherently are. And yet we tend to police ourselves by these cultural ideas about what a good woman is. She doesn't need rest. She never gets upset. She has no needs or wants. She has no hunger or desire. And I think that women recognize now that we've sort of bought into these ideas of goodness in a way that leads to complete burnout and lack of and self-denial. You know, my husband pointed out to me that in the 10 years we've been married, I've never watched more than 20 consecutive minutes of a movie because I have this sort of internal cattle prod that gets me off the couch to go do something because the idea of rest and not being productive, not doing for other people is so foreign to me. I just can't relax into life, you know? Sorry to interrupt. I'm I'm very excited about this because you write about, (laughs) you know, how your upbringing contributed to that. Tell us a bit about how your family life instilled that internal cattle prod. Well, this is what's interesting is that I, when I think about my childhood, I had always thought that those internal voices must be me or my husband or my parents. And I realized that the voices are actually cultural because I was raised in Montana by two liberal, not very patriarchal parents. I went to a school with no grades. I wasn't raised in any religion. I'm married to a feminist man. I make more money than him. It's all very modern. And yet... I have been a high achieving, highly driven woman in pursuit of this idea of being good enough for my entire life. And to the point of sort of, you know, breathlessness and and destroying my life because I wasn't actually enjoying it or finding any pleasure or joy. We'll come back to that breathlessness in a moment. But but you write about how, you know, the things were different from your for your mother and your father. So even though you were up the kind of less patriarchal end of the spectrum, there was still no relaxation for your mum. Yes, exactly. My mom grew also sort of has this internal cattle prod in her and Um, never really wanted to be a mother, but this felt like the only secure and safe choice marrying my dad. And she did love me, but she just never really enjoyed motherhood, but she still produced and sort of this endless to-do list. My, my memories of her as a child are sort of the parallel play of her pursuing this endless checklist, never relaxing. You know, we went on vacation 
Um, when I was in my twenties, I was exhausted and my parents would get up at, you know, four in the morning to go bird watching and I didn't bird watch. So I would take some books and go sit on the beach and read. And one day my mom, it, it drove my dad crazy because he felt like I should be maximizing this vacation and doing something cultural and self-improving. And um, one day my mom joined me and just couldn't get over how nice it was to sit on a beach in the sun and read and nap. It's like she had never allowed herself to go on a vacation. It had always been trips and that you could just do this was like an incredible awakening for her. Um, that was a very sort of telling moment for me and watching my mom sort of experience just being and not having to do stuff. I just found it so fascinating when you were writing Elise Lunan about how you tried so hard to live up to this ideal of the model woman that, that you'd been taught. Smart but modest, hardworking but considerate, very thin, lots of you know layers to that self-identity. And you write that you know it got to the stage where you hyperventilated for a month. Uh, how did that change things for you? Yeah. I mean, that's how I opened the book is with an experience of chronic hyperventilation, which isn't breathing into a paper bag. It's actually your body thinks that you don't have enough breath, but you're completely saturated. So you just start yawning and you can't take a full breath. It's exhausting. And I had been doing it for a month, possibly even two, and just chased by this idea that if I just kept achieving, kept doing more in the world, I would reach a point where I would feel safe, comfortable, good enough. And I had this dawning awareness in my therapist's office where I realized I could never outrun this. It wasn't going to happen. I wasn't there and I was never going to get there. And so I had to turn and face whatever it was that was telling me that I was not, not good. And that was really sort of the foundational moment of actually leaning into writing this book and figuring out what it was and where it came from. The book is called The Price of the, On Our Best Behavior, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. And the author is Elise Lunan. My name's Hilary Harper, and you're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Elise, a lot of men would say, look, I identify with these drives as well. I feel like I can never rest. I feel like I shouldn't express my anger. I feel like envy is a bad thing. How did you become sure that these are broader cultural messages that impact women in particular ways, as opposed to it just being something about you? you, for example. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't observe it in the men that I know and love in the same way that I could see it in women. That when you think about the sin, sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, anger, that I saw my friends self-policing and policing each other about these ideas in a way that men weren't to the same extent. And one of the, the main theses of the book is that women are coded for goodness and men are coded for power. And we see this everywhere. The The worst thing you can do to a woman is reputational harm. She's a bad woman, a bad mother, unkind, uncaring, whatever it may be. And for men, it's they can do anything. They can commit a crime. And if they are still perceived as powerful, we continue to revere them. And it just felt so insistent. Not that, and, and I just want to be clear, this isn't an anti-male book in any way. It's about patriarchy is a system that lives in all of us and that hurts all of us, including men. I think men are, I include this eighth, originally there were eight 
there were eight thoughts before they became the cardinal vices in 590 AD. And the eighth thought was sadness. And I included sadness in the book because the monk who created the sins or the, the, the eight thoughts of Agrius Ponticus gave it a feminine soul. And I argue that it's the one that's lodged most deeply in men and that fear of sadness and the way that men have been severed from their feelings is killing them. And that the primary symptom of this is toxic masculinity and that to sort of rebalance society, part of it is reconnecting men with their feelings and that it's okay to be sad. It's okay to feel powerless. We're speaking with Elise Lunan. Elise, I was struck by the chapter on pride. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you came to understand that women are punished for showing pride. Uh, I understand that there's an example from your childhood again about being a champion skier that's relevant here. Yeah, I as a child, I was a you know high achieving. I won trophies and various activities, but the consistent and insistent. Um, admonishment from my parents was to be humble at all costs, to not be too big for my britches. Nobody likes a proud, braggy girl. You know, the the tall poppy syndrome. I think everyone's really familiar with this idea. Don't stand out. You'll be shunned and cut off. And for women, there's there is really no safe way to be visible and seen and celebrated for your gifts. Um, there is a very clear trajectory for female founders, actresses, singers, other visible women in our culture where they sort of reach a certain point where we decide, oh, you are you have gotten too big. We need to cut you down and and bring you sort of below us. We're going to destroy you. We don't do this to men in the same way. And we can say as women, oh, they're just famous. It doesn't matter. Who cares that Anne Hathaway is getting trashed in the tabloids or Princess Diana, whoever it might be, but it's a, it is conditioning. It's programming for all women. It's what we see. This is what happens to women who dare to be seen. This is a woman, what we do to women who have a dream for themselves and share their gifts with the world. Watch out, be careful, be humble. Do not let anyone celebrate you because you will be destroyed. Yeah, there was a really powerful bit in the book where you you talk about the alleged confidence problem that women had and women you know in business were like, we don't have a confidence problem. We know we're really well prepared and we're really good at things. We just know better than to show it. And I just felt my stomach muscles contract. Let's talk about anger, though, before we run out of time, because this is a big one for me. Uh, you, You know, you can have in our culture, you can have that sense that there's righteous anger, that it can potentially be a positive driver. What's your view Mm -hmm. on how that applies to women? Yeah, I think women, you know, culturally, we do not like angry women, Uh, sort of to the beginning of stories, women have been shamed for their women, they're turned into crazy nags, insane shrews, scolds, all the all the epithets. We don't really have those same words for men. Even our words for an angry man brings it back to the mother, um, uh, son of a bee or, you know, stuff like that. So women have been taught that to be angry means that we might suffer relational loss, that to be upset, to assert your needs, to establish a boundary might mean that the people around you will say, wait, this is not acceptable. We're out of here. and. The problem is that we're so scared of conflict, but we still have aggression. Anger is a very natural animating impulse. It's essential information, but 
It comes out sideways. And it's essential that women get in touch with our anger because it shows us what we need. It shows us where our needs aren't being met. And when processed, understood, and channeled, it can really move things. It can change the world. And part of it is sort of learning emotional liberation through anger is saying, oh, I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to be responsible for your feelings or make you responsible for mine, but I am going to tell you what I need. So I am angry because I am needing fill in the blanks. And to be able to say that is quite powerful because you are also in that process telling someone how to meet your needs, but also you're identifying what those needs are. And I think so many of us have never stopped to ask that question. And there's a racist aspect to the anger question too, isn't there? I mean, if yeah. uh, black women and men in the States, for example, or here uh, uh, publicly express anger, the reaction can be so much harsher than yes. for non-black people. Uh, yes. How do we approach that if we're trying to find a healthy way to express anger and to support others to express righteous anger? Yes. The angry black woman is a terrible trope. And what's fascinating about the research is it suggests in terms of women that white women are the angriest because I would argue the black women are so uh, clear-eyed, clear-sighted about patriarchy, about power, um, how it informs society that they have learned how to process their anger in really beneficial and productive ways. So in the States, at least, Black women are saving democracy, driving social change. They're perfect examples of what it looks like to take that anger and transform it into uh, useful and applied uh, pressure and what it looks like to save, quote unquote, good anger for the world. And part of what needs to happen with all of this is for us to start accessing as, as allies, as a white woman to start accessing my anger and learning how to use it as well so that it's not people aren't left on an island expressing their rage and that there's sort of a communal chorus of actually this is not okay and let's push culture and society forward rather than waiting for the angriest or those who are most oppressed to do that work for us. And Elise, you argue for a rebalancing of of needs and expressions of needs, uh, not just that you know some people have to suck it up more and other people uh, can let right. it out more. It's it's got to be more equal. Some text messages yes. saying uh, agreeing with some of the tenets of your arguments. You're only allowed to be angry if you're protecting others, like the mama bear says. One, Margaret says, I don't understand why women act the part of martyrs instead of owning their choices. But I guess we have heard a bit about the pushback that comes from that. At least, what kind of reactions did you get when you started making changes in your life to say, look, I, I can't tamp down these aspects of myself anymore? Yeah, I mean, I'm a work in progress and I'm excited actually now that the book is out. I've been living with this by myself, with my editor for years to have these more and more of these conversations with other women because it's exciting to see how it starts catching momentum and moving and what I see happening amongst groups of women that have gathered for the book is that when you start telling the truth about your life, other women feel less alone. Suddenly it's like, oh, that voice in the head that I've been hearing is not just mine, it's yours too. And that I think we can start liberating ourselves from the ways in which we are self-restricting and self-denying 
and step more fully into ourselves in a really beautiful way. And when we model it for each other, it becomes more possible for all of us. Elise Lunan, thank you so much for talking with us on Life Matters today about this uh, potential collective effort that could make things better for everyone. It's been great to chat. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Elise Lunan is the author of On Our Best Behaviour, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. She's also the host of the Pulling the Thread podcast. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.